Today's scripture comes from Genesis chapter 45, verses 1 through 8. Please stand for the reading of God's word. And hear now the word of the Lord. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh, and lord over all his house, and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Hello, everybody. It's good to be back. I want to continue on with Genesis and the series on Joseph. Today, we read what we know to be the most climactic part of Joseph's story. This is the build-ups climax. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what everything has been coming toward. And just like a beautiful piece of music, how you have this intro, there is this longing that you have and you're waiting for, and boom, 45. That's the chapter where we see the climax. And this is today. And to have this happen, I want to remind you that two weeks ago, what we saw from Judah wasn't just a plea for mercy but it was repentance, repentance toward God and repentance for what he and his brothers did before they were reunited. There was repentance, there was a reuniting, and I wanna just share the wisdom that is in the verses that our deacon Hannah read is that after the repentance and there's this reuniting, immediately Joseph goes, is my father still alive in in verse three? And uh, there's things in common. So when there's repentance, you wanna reunite with somebody and immediately what you can do from there is you find what you have in common because remember, Judah was talking about his father over and over again. And that's when Joseph couldn't contain himself any longer. No no more control over his body. And he had to confess. And he goes, how is my father? So a little bit of wisdom for you. If you want this repentance and reuniting, immediately go with things in common. Because the theme for today is reconciliation reconciliation and this climax has three parts to be honest and two weeks ago we had repentance and today we have reconciliation and next week we have another re word if you want to know you have to come next week but it's three parts really and when we go 
we realize that this is something, reconciliation is something that we really need. This reunification of bodies and souls, something that was broken before, being mended again, this is something that we want. And this is something that we can't have on social media. This is something that we also need to realize. You cannot be fully reunited on social media, but you can be fully separated. Isn't that amazing? I hope this is a wisdom that our millennials, our college students, but even beyond, even those that are older can remember and recognize. You cannot be fully reunited on social media, but you can be fully separated. There's a lot of hurt that you can give in social media, but can you be fully reunited? We see that the, because of this deep, deep pain and this deep sorrow and even despair, what we don't need is a cliche answer. We don't need a cliche answer and response to the deep pain we've received in the past. As spectacular and horrifying the hurt was, we need an even greater and even more spectacular and awesome answer, healing. And when we read this, we see that in verse 3, his brothers, when Joseph goes, how is my father? His brothers responded with, oh, cool. Now we're cool with Joseph? That's awesome. They didn't respond that way. They responded in dismay. In Hebrew, that's bahal. And bahal is also known to be troubled. Remember when the faces is troubled, amazed, but also terrified. When Joseph responds in this way, they are terrified because they don't know what is going on. As I continue on this theme of reconciliation, I just want to share with you this story. One New Year's Eve at London's Garrick Club, there was a British dramatist, Frederick Lunsdale, and was asked by Seymour Hicks to reconcile with a fellow member. The two had quarreled in the past and never restored their friendship. You must, Hicks said to Lunsdale. It is very unkind to be unfriendly at such a time. Go over now and wish him a happy new year. So Lunsdale crossed the room and spoke to his enemy. I wish you a happy new year, he said, but only one. Reconciliation, we know we need it, but let's be honest, it's tough. It's tough. So I have three points for reconciliation. One is reconciliation is the deep desire of the soul. Number two, reconciliation is brought by God. Number three, reconciliation brings intimacy. It is the deep desire of our soul. It is brought by God and it brings intimacy. This past week, I've been listening to Mozart's Requiem over and over again. And I shared it with my mom, who's also a uh, fan of classical music. My mom's side of the family is all like classically trained and you know, my grandfather was a conductor in Korea and my dad's side, I shared before, is, uh, was all pastors. And so when I grew up, and I'm being completely honest with you, when I grew up, I only listened to two kinds of music. That's why when people uh, come talk to me about things like Depeche Mode or, or, or what is it, Erasure or something like that. I actually didn't listen to that. I listened to classical music 
minus, minus uh, Beethoven. I tried listening to Beethoven, my grandma was so mad. She's like, Beethoven's crazy, you wanna be crazy? And then she like smacked me, so I couldn't listen. I was like, I'm forbidden from listening to Beethoven. Only when I was older, I started listening, to, but I, I used to listen to classical and the other, other was uh, Christian worship music. And there was like Maranatha music, Hosanna, Hosanna Integrity music that was coming out. And then Hillsong came out. I know I'm dating myself, but it's, it's okay, it's fine. Um, and so I would listen to that. And one of, the, one of my favorite pieces to listen to is Mozart's Requiem. And I was listening to him, I was sharing with my mom, because there's so many different versions, people have different interpretations, the speed, the order. Uh, if you don't know, it's because Mozart died before fully completing his Requiem. Uh, he died at the young age of 35, and it's still somewhat of a mystery. It shrouds his death. And then my mom would just go, you know, poor Mozart. I wish he and his father would have reconciled. And if you don't know, he grew up very harshly under his father, where he was trained in a kind of extreme manner. Like, tiger mom is nothing compared to what Mozart's father did to Mozart. And so he grew up with this kind of chip on his shoulder. And this is immediately, as, as we were listening to the Requiem, my mom would answer that way. I wish he didn't have so much hurt from his father. Reconciliation is the deep desire of the soul, but it doesn't come easily. But it still is the deep desire of the soul. Growing up in a Korean church, I, and maybe most, many of you, must have had some hurt as well. I remember a church that I loved and I went to. I loved my college pastor. And college students, I hope that you can love your pastors and your college pastors well. But I love my college pastor so much. And he had shared with me so much wisdom, helped me grow so much in my very formative Christian years. And there was something going on in the Korean church at the time. And many of you might not be familiar, but some of you may remember. But there was a powerful, quote unquote, prayer movement that was going on. And in this prayer movement, a lot of amazing spiritual things happen, which is why I always go, if you really want that spiritual power, be careful. You don't know what you're asking for. If it's not grounded in the word, all you really want is glory for yourself. And I really mean that. You need to be ground in the faith in Christ and ground in the word of God. And power is just secondary. It should always point to Christ. So what if you don't have the so-called power? The gospel of Christ is power enough to save. What more are you wanting? What more can you ask for? And so uh, there was this movement going on where they were praying. This was like this Korean church thing, and uh, demons would come in, and they would possess a body. And then in this prayer circle, they would pray and cast out the demon. And then the demon would jump to another body. And they, this would happen. This is wrong. This was obviously wrong. My college pastor stood up and spoke out against it. And I remember thinking, he's absolutely right. This is wrong. There's something wrong with this. This is not practice. You don't practice casting out demons by, in a prayer circle. This is real spiritual warfare. Um, and he spoke out against it. And I remember going to a service once, and it was really odd. It felt like 
I was seeing Jesus like in trial too. <laughs> and it was funny because he was standing up on, on, on the stage like right around where I'm pointing and the whole church came and started to point fingers at him and they started to curse him out. In fact, two different men uh, would come out and they, one person slapped him after accusing him for doing something that was terrible and it was completely false. This is the most gentle pastor I knew. Another person went up and spit in his face and he just stood there and took it. And I was there in the back like, this is just so wrong. And the hurt that I had from seeing this in the Korean church, I remember thinking, I will never go back to a Korean church. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna find myself a multicultural church or even a non-Korean church and serve there. But here I am, right? Uh, but anyway, that's beside the point. Uh, I think God has just an amazing thing in store for us. But whatever the case is, there's this deep hurt that we all have, either from the church, if you grew up in church, but definitely from your family because we grew up with our family. The more we stay together, the more we're bound to hurt each other too. But there is this deep desire in our souls for reconciliation, and it's not easy. It's not easy. It's not as simple as saying, I forgive you. Tell me if it is, because in my experience, I have found out that it is untrue. Because reconciliation is brought by God. Reconciliation is brought by God. The author P. Eluard once remarked, another world exists and it, it is, and it is in this one. When Joseph is talking about what's going on, he is talking also about another world. Three times in this passage, Joseph mentions that it is God who has his good purpose fulfilled in spite human deeds. So Joseph interprets the world in a different way. He could have been bitter. He could have been angry. He could have said, I will never, ever forgive you for what you did to me. You left me for dead. You mocked me. You scorned me. You ate lunch while I was crying and begging for mercy. And he could have killed them on the spot. My question is, if he did that, would there have been reconciliation, the deep longing of the heart? But Joseph interprets all that happens in a different way. Through Joseph's suffering, God saves his entire clan, his entire family. Through his suffering, he saves nations, thereby preserving the promise God made Abraham. You know, there's a question that many people ask, usually by non-Christians, but also by Christians. And the question is, why doesn't God stop evil? Why is there so much suffering in the world? To that question, let me postulate something crazy to you. What if that's the wrong question? What if that's the wrong question. If I have a little child and this little child is hell-bent 
on using a chainsaw to kill somebody. And what I do is I have the power to stop the little child, don't I? I have the power to even cage him, to bind him, to restrict him for eternity, do I not? What if I do that? Does that change anything for the child? And it's something really to think about. Because what is it that I lack then? If all I can do is restrict him and restrain him, but I cannot change the heart. You know what we have to realize is that when we ask the question, the better question is, can God take what is deepest and darkest in society, in our lives, personally, communally, in every sense of the word, can God take the deepest and darkest experience that we have and turn it around for good? Can God do that? Because I believe that is true power then. I believe that's true love then. If I can take whatever you experience and turn it for good. If you know this truth, then you interpret the narrative in a different way. Joseph reacted differently because he interpreted his experience not from a worm's eye view of pain and hurt and bitterness, but he interpreted his experience from God's perspective. And finally, reconciliation brings intimacy. In verses 14 and 15 it says, Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept on them. And after that his brothers talked to him and talked with him. You know, we live in a place where if we show this kind of vulnerability and intimacy, it's a sign of weakness. But isn't it because we don't know what it means to be reconciled? Because when we are reconciled, intimacy comes flooding back in our lives the way it's supposed to be. Don't we shy away from touch and connection because we've already been hurt and we don't want to be hurt again? Because we haven't been reconciled and we don't know how we'll ever be reconciled again. But when we are reconciled, it brings intimacy. Our deepest longing is fulfilled through reconciliation. Intimacy goes beyond the power plays within group dynamics. It goes beyond composing yourself and controlling yourself. Because you remember in the chapter before, Joseph had to cry, so he left the room. And after he composed himself, he came out. But once there was reconciliation right at the door, he couldn't control himself any longer. It goes beyond the limitations of a calloused and hardened heart. Intimacy creates a context of trust, discarding power and control, we favor intimacy. Intimacy has us embrace deep compassion, a tender sensitivity, a genuine forgiveness. You know, what's been going on in the world, people see it as crazy, but how do you see it? 
Do you see it from a worm's eye view? Or do you see it from God's perspective that he can take even this horrific, terrible, destructive event that happened and turn it for good? That's why the UK needs the gospel. That's why Kabul needs the gospel. That's why the world needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. It turns our dysfunctional family, a family that only brought us hurt in this world, into a family of light. I want to end with this one short, I'm sorry, it's not short. It's a little long illustration. I'm, I'm admitting it to you, so you prepare yourselves. But it's, uh, it's an excerpt from Tim Kimmel's uh, Little House on the Freeway. Shortly after the turn of the century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea. Of all their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that was sickened the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhuman. Many Koreans live today with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation. One group singled out for concentrated oppression were the Christians. When the Japanese army overpowered Korea, one of the first things they did was board up the evangelical churches and eject most foreign missionaries. It has always fascinated me how people fail to learn from history. Conquering nations have consistently felt that shutting up churches would shut down Christianity. It didn't work in Rome when the church was established, and it hasn't worked since. Yet somehow the Japanese thought they would have a different success record. The conquerors stayed, started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. The oppression intensified as the Japanese military increased its profile in the South Pacific. The land of the rising sun spread its influence through a reign of savage brutality. Anguish filled the hearts of the oppressed and kindled hatred deep in their souls. One pastor persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated, and the police chief ordered to unlock his church for one meeting. And it didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans. Long before dawn on that promised Sunday, Korean families throughout a wide area made their way to the church. They passed the staring eyes of their Japanese captors, but nothing was going to steal their joy. As they closed the doors behind them, they shut out the cares of oppression and shut in a burning spirit anxious to glorify their Lord. Uh, the Korean church has always had a reputation as a singing church. Their voices of praise could not be concealed inside the little wooden frame sanctuary. Song after song ran through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed to suspend in time. It was during a stanza of, Near my God to thee, 
that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited. Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flame began to lick the baseboard on the interior walls. There was an immediate rush for the windows, but momentary hope recoiled in horror as the men climbing out of the windows came crashing back in, their bodies ripped by a hail of bullets. The, the good pastor knew it was the end with a calm that comes from confidence. He led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. The first few words were all the prompting the terrified worshipers needed. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution of the innocent. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? Just before the roof collapsed, they sang the last verse, the words and eternal testimony to their faith, but drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight and now I am happy all the day. The strains of music and wails of children were lost in a roar of flames. The elements that once formed bone and flesh mixed with the, mixed with the smoke and dissipated into the air. The bodies that once housed life fused with the charred rubble of a building that once housed the church. But the souls who left singing finished their course in the throne room of God. Clearing the incinerated remains was the easy part. Erasing the hate would take decades. For some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low. There seemed to be no way to curb their bitter loathing of the Japanese. In the decades that followed, that bitterness was passed on to a new generation. The Japanese, although conquered, remained a hated enemy. The monument the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain. In a rest, how could rest coexist with a bitterness deep as marrow in the bones? Suffering, of course, is a part of life. People hurt people. Almost all of us have experienced it at some time. Maybe you felt it when you came home to find that your spouse had abandoned you, or when your integrity was destroyed by a series of well-timed lies, or when your company was bled dry by a partner. It kills you inside. Bitterness clamps down on your soul like iron shackles. The Korean people who found it too hard to forgive could not enjoy the peace that passes all understanding. Hatred choked their joy. It wasn't until 1972 that any hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. When they read the details of the tragedy and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. 
their country had sinned, and even though none of them were personally involved, and some weren't even born at the time of the tragedy, they still felt a national guilt that could not be excused. They returned to Japan, uh, committed to right a wrong. There was an immediate outpouring of love from their fellow believers. They raised 10 million yen, which translates to about uh, $25,000. The money was transferred through proper channels and a beautiful white church building was erected on the site of the tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempts at making peace appreciated, the memories were still there. Hatred preserves pain. It keeps the wounds open and the hurts fresh. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, and the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung the day the church was burned. The song leader began, to, began the words, Nearer my God to thee. But something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. The inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of churchgoers and a past generation gave hope once more. The song leader closed the service with the hymn at the cross. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed from deep inside, they turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive. The guarded, callous hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender, but the love of the Japanese believers, not intimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. One Korean turned toward a Japanese brother, then another, and then the floodgates holding back a wave of emotion let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Korean tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven has sent the gift of reconciliation to a little white church in Korea. True and whole reconciliation comes through Christ our Savior. Because of what he did, we can be free from the paralyzing effects of sin, suffering, and hopelessness. Place your trust in him, because even now he is mighty to save. He reconciles us with our creator God, and he reconciles us with each other. That's why Mozart's Requiem, as sad as it is, is so powerful. What we need is an equally or even more powerful song that will lift up the soul to the Lord. And I remember listening for the first time to G.F. Handel's Messiah, Hallelujah. This is a song that the world knows so well that I don't even have to sing the words. I can just rhythmic, rhythmically say it and you would know exactly what song it is. It's hallelujah, hallelujah, 
Hallelujah, Hallelujah. And we all know that this is what we long for, to be lifted up into the presence of the Lord and be reconciled and be complete and whole. This Pentecost Sunday, I want to encourage you, CGS, the church gathered and scattered, to ask for his spirit to fill you and to guide you to the path of complete reconciliation. Let us pray.